Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 132 of the Lawyerist podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with startup in-house lawyer Elliot Miller and small firm boutique outside counsel Adam Losey about the different ways they view one another's roles and how it's changing. Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio Legal Practice Management Software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it for free today at Clio.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So Aaron, there's a piece of news lately that I think answers a question that we get all the time when we talk about tech competence, which is we talk about tech competence, we give examples of how it's harmed clients and examples of lawyers who aren't probably meeting their duties. And someone inevitably marches up to me afterwards and challenges me to come up with an example of when tech incompetence has ever gotten a lawyer in trouble. And I mean, I think we've actually provided many examples of when it's potentially lost someone a point they're trying to make in the courtroom or when it's harmed their duty to keep their clients information secure. But just recently, there was a great example of where a lawyer's incompetence with e-discovery software harmed not just her client, but thousands or hundreds of thousands of her client's customers. And this is the Wells Fargo case that the ABA Journal covered recently where the lawyer didn't understand how to use the e-discovery software. And so when she produced the documents to the other side, she was producing all kinds of stuff that she hadn't reviewed that wasn't privileged and that wasn't redacted. And that revealed all kinds of personal information about Wells Fargo's customers and and also probably harmed Wells Fargo's, you know, claims and strategy in the litigation as well. So, wait, we're Wells Fargo customers. Do we have standing to, like, get her discipline started? (laughs) I mean, I'm wondering about that, honestly. You know, is my information... Uh, included in this document dump, basically. And especially with the concerns about PACER, which is terrible when it comes to unredacted information. It's not like it's hard for somebody to get a hold of it. Nothing's happened to her yet. Nothing may happen to her. And um, her argument is that the software is too hard to use and she shouldn't be expected to do it correctly, I guess, Um, which is crazy to me. But Yeah, I guess that's the part that I don't (laughs) understand is the lawyer who uses the software and then after using it improperly and potentially violating all sorts of rules or losing her case, then says the software was the problem. But like, you should figure that out at the front end. Yeah. Is do I know how this works and what the buttons do and what will happen when it's time to submit and... I want to understand all of that before I hit the upload button at the front end. That That is the definition of tech competence, is right. understanding how the technology works before you try to use it. Which is now a, or always has been a core yeah. ethics rule yeah, that you always must has be been. competent. Yeah, yeah, always has been newly sort of called out in the comment. But, you know, so I think this is probably the best example I've seen where the next time somebody challenges me as if, You know, what they're really saying is, I want to go on being incompetent. Isn't that fine? (laughs) Well, and so So. the the standard I think is interesting is kind of the the reasonableness, which is you have to do reasonable things to be competent. And the question here is, how much 
e-discovery software training do you need or not need in the same sense that metadata in Microsoft Word can often reveal things you don't expect it to. How much do you need to know about what Microsoft Word is or isn't tracking and whatever future technology comes next? There can't be an expectation that you have protected all future clients from all potential risks from all things technology could do because technology is moving way faster than people, let alone lawyers, yeah. um, can even keep up with. And so it's the, the question of what the standard is. This one seems potentially further out of bounds than many. Yeah, we'll include the link and you can judge for yourself. I mean, you're right. It, the question is what is reasonable? And my argument will always be that doing nothing is never reasonable. You have right. to do something. And um, and what bugs me about you know getting challenged on that point is I think it's lawyers who are you know trying to salve their conscience and justify continuing to do almost nothing, and that's never going to be okay. But you know, so the next time you uh, get to use e-discovery software in litigation, maybe check out the knowledge base at least and try and figure out how to use it first. Yeah, I mean, e-discovery software as especially on this kind of Wells Fargo <laughs> enterprise, large firm scale, has got to be a nightmare to figure out Maybe. which one to use and then the training <laughs> you need to have. And I, I mean, I legitimately can't even comprehend how terrible it must be to have to be a doc review manager. Yes, but you need to be. You do. Yeah. So with that, there's not something we discussed, but uh, I'm guessing Adam and Elliot have probably run into it. So let's hear from them about related subjects. Thanks very much for having us here, Sam. My name's Adam Losey. I'm a partner at a fairly new boutique law firm coming from a big law firm background, and I'm generally speaking, a litigator and kind of trusted advisor and counselor role in my practice. Hi, Sam. This is Elliot Miller. I'm general counsel for Wowza Media Systems, a streaming video software and services company based in Denver, Colorado. Elliot, how big is that company? We've got about 100 people. About half of those work out of our headquarters here in the Denver area, and the other half work from their home offices in the U.S. and around the world. And how big is the, the lawyer department? It is just me. You're talking to the whole department. <laughs> gotcha. I, I didn't have a good feel for like how many, you know, roughly how many employees equal how many in-house uh, lawyers. I don't know if there's a rule of thumb for that, but. I don't either. We're, we're one to a hundred right now. And I do uh, have the benefit of getting to do a fair bit of business development and, and non-legal work as well. So the work uh, fluctuates from being pure legal work to a, a mix, but I am the legal department here. Well, uh, and Adam, I, I want to ask you more about your firm too, but I'm curious about uh, what Elliot just said. So you do, when you say business development, say more about that. Sure. I've gotten an opportunity to do a fair amount of work uh, with our partners and prospects um, globally. And so working with large entities that we want to develop relationships with, whether it be a channel partner relationship or uh, the software and services company working with uh, platform providers to offer our software and services on their platform or, or create some more integrated offerings. I've had the opportunity to work with um, a, a number of folks in those types of contexts. And I've on occasion gotten to go to trade shows and have to get a separate set of business cards that don't uh, come off as purely <laughs> a legal, legal role. Um, but it's been a lot of fun and it's certainly been a great way to learn about the business and uh, um, some of those competing interests that you typically have between a sales or business development group and your legal group and helping, I think, to uh, bridge those gaps by, by uh, wearing both hats from time to time. 
So when you say you're uh, you're working with channel partners and and over and other partners, uh, is that mostly in your role as a lawyer to, to kind of help negotiate the arrangement, uh, or are you stepping out of your legal shoes? Uh, certainly leveraging that the former. So it, it usually starts with the um, initial conversations that lead up to some sort of some sort of deal, some sort of agreement, um, and so certainly negotiating that deal and then. Um, where it's appropriate, I've been able to, to stay in place um, and, and be a Wowser representative in some of these key relationships for the company. Cool. Uh, so, Adam, uh, you started your own firm, and tell me a little bit more about uh, how it's how you founded it and how it's grown since then, and what it looks like today. Sure. Actually, I uh, I joined my wife who who started our firm um, about five or six months before I joined it, and uh, we were both with with large national law firms. We liked the firms we worked with very much. Um, you know, no issue with the jobs there, but we wanted to do something a little bit different. And she kind of went first and uh, had some success in the practice. And we talked at length about this culture we wanted to build and this firm we wanted to build. And I actually, you know, sat down and uh, wrote a bunch of business haikus that turned into our, our attorney's handbook over time. And I, I've uh, read those haikus. Many of them are absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I, but also really funny. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a better lawyer than I am a poet. My prose <laughs> is probably my stronger point. But uh, most people tend to either immediately get turned off by our our culture manual and the idea of a haiku. But then there's this special little subset of lawyers that, uh, luckily, we've been able to build. There's six lawyers in a paralegal right now, and and we're growing. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's a little bit unique in what we're trying to do. We're not trying to become a, a bigger law firm, but we want to be a medium-sized boutique that does primarily litigation, commercial transactions, business counseling, and internet and privacy sort of work and really have liked the experience. And uh, uh, it's been a very different experience than the past uh, eight years or so of my legal career. So how big are you trying to get? That's a really good question that we we struggle with. Um, I, I think what we really want to do is be the best at the few things that we do and also be able to offer a lot of the bread and butter general services work. So if you were to ask me right now what the vision is, it's probably, I don't know, a dozen to to 20 partners and then a similar greater number of associates. Right now, we've got offices in Orlando, Tampa, and Tallahassee. Um, And one of the things we do struggle with is a lot of what we do as a firm is is more of a national kind of a a practice and client base. And I'm licensed Mm -hmm. in California and Arizona and New York and Florida and DC. But it's kind of an interesting time in the practice of law where geography doesn't really matter as much outside of litigation. And it's interesting to try and play a little bit in a national space competing for that kind of work with a, a geographically somewhat compact boutique law firm. So are you trying to compete with big firms for clients or is the size of client that you're going after sort of a fall outside of the big firm, you know, the typical big firm client? I guess it really depends on on what you mean by big firm. You know, a lot of our clients right now are, are you know, Fortune 500 bigger companies, uh, but the work that we do for them is more targeted towards cybersecurity or other things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure if I would say we we're trying to compete with bigger law firms. I know in my experience, bigger law firms are looking for, you know, Fortune 100 institutional clients that have large, steady, recurring work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Probably not what we're going for right now, but you know we're in uh, we're in about month six or so of our firm, and so right now we're still kind of finding our bearings a little bit. But so far, again, I've been pleased to find that the roadblock that I thought might be present for a larger company using a boutique firm is 
not as substantial of a barrier as I thought it would be going in. You didn't think that uh, bigger companies would be interested in using boutique litigation firms? Yeah, I, I thought that was the case. Now, there's a few noticeable exceptions, and I've read they've put materials out about this, you know, about like the FedEx model, where FedEx does make it a point from what I've read online, although I haven't represented them, of using, you know, local litigation firms and things like that. But it can be. I think from the in-house perspective, I'm not really sure because uh, I've not been there, but would be interested to hear what Elliot has to say about it. Sometimes there can be a hesitancy to use you know, a smaller firm or a newer thing as opposed to a long-established name brand, uh, just because if something doesn't quite go right, um, if you've taken a risk on a new firm, you know, I think some people are hesitant to do that. And the way we typically have gotten around it is we're the same lawyers we were before at the jobs before. And mm -hmm. at least in most of my experience, people generally tend to hire lawyers, not law firms, although there's exceptions to that, certainly. And, um, you know, so far, we've been fairly successful with it. Elliot, I'm, I am curious to hear what you think about that. Do you hire lawyers or do you hire law firms? It is a mix. I, I very much like the expression that you hire lawyers and not law firms. And certainly, my personal relationships with each of the lawyers or key lawyers that I work with at a firm are dramatically more important to me than the, the firm itself. Um, and I uh, fortunately don't have, don't get involved in a lot of, um, you know, demand, demand letter writing campaigns or those sorts of things where I think I might differently care about the letterhead itself. Um, but certainly for a um, large portion of, of our outside legal spend, I work with smaller firms that have expertise in, in our subject matter. So for us in in technology and specifically streaming video technology. Um, I work with a small, relatively boutique patent firm to do our um, a lot of our patent filings, um, work with some smaller boutique litigators for um, some of the litigation issues that we've, we have had. Um, and then kind of layered on top of that, I guess I'd say we do work with some large national and, and international law firms um, in large part to cover us in areas of uh, corporate matters. Uh, some of those, you know, actually international matters that we have, whether they're transactional or, um, or IP related. Um, so it really ends up being a mix, but I think overall my bias is to find individual lawyers who I have great relationships with and who I trust um, and to allow that to be my, my first kind of foray into working with a firm, see how it goes from there, and then to build the relationship. Um, but it, it certainly is a mix, and I, I think that certainly goes to the point that having a large global law firm doesn't necessarily solve all your problems and finding folks who are either where you want them to be or have the experience with exactly what you want them to have the experience with is the key you're looking for. It sounds like you hire the firm when you don't know a lawyer. And then once you get to know the lawyer, you might follow that lawyer somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair way to say it. Um, certainly, I've been in-house for about 10 years now. I've, I've been, I think, fortunate to be in-house since I graduated law school. Um, this is my kind of third in-house position. And so I've built a number of relationships now that I, that I do take with me um, from in-house position to in-house position. But certainly, there are there are significant cases where I've kind of gone with the firm and then developed relationships from there. Again, especially on things like, like corporate or international where I have been forced for one reason or another to kind of start anew. Adam, isn't that kind of scary? I mean, uh, on the one hand, it's helping you get started because you're able to reassure clients that um, you're still the same lawyer you were. But on the other hand, as your clients start to build those kinds of relationships with other lawyers at your firm, 
um, your biggest assets go home, walk out the door every evening, right? And uh, and potentially walk out of your door and never come back. And maybe your clients go with them because their loyalty is now to the to the lawyer, not the firm. And that's a that's a very interesting question and problem, and probably why. And, and I'm not sure if this is the case in every state in the union, but in Florida, lawyers can't be subject to non-compete agreements. You know, right. normally uh, non-competes are kind of how you handle that in a business context. My view of it, and and certainly anyone can quote me on that, is uh, no lawyer owns a client. In particular, certainly there are relationships, but if somebody wanted to leave our firm and they had a good client, they had a good relationship for them, and it made sense for the client to continue with them, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think kind of the core of our culture is, is a client service focus, and clients really belong with the lawyers that offer them the most value that can serve them the best, even if that's at a different firm when somebody chooses to make a, some sort of a lateral move. And sure, I mean, that's why it's so important to make sure that you have a good culture, you have people that like where they are, that you don't have a law firm that's uh, composed of mercenaries, essentially, going to the highest bidder. I think if you have a good culture and you make sure that people like coming to work every day, that the risk of people leaving uh, is much lower. And if somebody wants to leave, you know, I think law firms would be wise to support people that want to leave, you know, even if they want to leave and and start their own firm or go in-house. I tend to think that there's plenty of work on the table for everybody else. You know, I guess I'm curious about what both of you think about this, but uh, there's been a lot of of talk and about the movement at, at big firms, and I think uh, smaller firms are starting to try to do this too, um, where you do build the firm up as a brand that guarantees a kind of service and a level of service and institutional knowledge and technology competency to try and encourage companies and, and clients of all kinds to hire the, the firm, not the lawyer. Um, and so that the firm can say to the lawyer, go ahead and leave, um, you can go and be where you want, but your clients aren't going to get the same thing that we promised them um, and the brand promise that we've created. Um, I'm curious if you're starting to see more of that, Elliot. Uh, are are the, the lawyers who want your business trying to guarantee some consistency or um, is it still mostly about the lawyers? I hate to be so quickly into the conversation and, and saying it all is about, it's all about the money, but it, um, I think a lot of that a lot of what you're speaking to, Sam, does end up for me at least being about the overall financial relationship. And as I think about what Adam was just saying, um, we've got some firms that do somewhat repetitive work for us, but for which there's a lot of work. And that that really is where I see a kind of nexus between the firm and the lawyer. Having a lawyer or two there who know our work and know what I need uh, on a daily basis, coupled with having an overall financial relationship with the firm that does provide me with a lot of consistency and predictability in terms of my costs does end up being a lot of the sweet spot. Um, a lot of the matters we work on or I work on, uh, I think get tough to uh, offer me kind of guaranteed results, right? Or offer me a global trademark program or something like that, that has any sort of cost certainty to it. And so I do think it resolves back to relationship with a lawyer or two and some sort of understanding of what costs are going to look like it. And I don't mean it as a a fixed fee or a flat fee or anything like that, but I'm just understanding what a project or a series of projects over a month or a number of years even is going to look like is really, I think, the sweet spot for me when I'm looking for uh, to make an outside counsel selection. So I need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to pick up that thread and talk more about fees because I think... Um, It's obviously a hot topic across the board, and there's a lot of talk about it without a whole lot of talking to actual in-house counsel and outside lawyers about what they're seeing about it. So 
Um, I want to explore that in a minute. Uh, here we're going to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm, you could spend more time helping clients in need, or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, and we're back. And uh, Elliot, maybe I'll start with you. Um, you were just talking about fee certainty, and fee certainty is absolutely something that, that comes up again and again and again. I'm curious, though, it sounds like the the outside lawyers that you're dealing with are giving you fee certainty in the terms of sort of personal guarantees. It doesn't sound like you're dealing with, you know, that you're, you're actually getting estimates and um, bids and things like that. So um, tell me, how does fee certainty come to you? And, and what does that actually look like in your day to day? And what do you look for when you're when you're trying to hire? Sure. I, uh, it's, it's a mix. So I, for truly, some truly repetitive work. So on things like, um, domestic filings on IP issues or those sorts of things, um, I can get some actual fee certainty, right? I can know from a firm exactly what it's going to cost to file a trademark or patent application. So much of our business at Wowza is international that, that that fee certainty doesn't end up being a large portion of the legal spend that I have. And so in in the alternative to that, what I do want to have is a good relationship with a U.S. firm that if I need international help, either has an office or can help me find an office and I have a good understanding of how the flow through of costs is going to work and what sort of cost structure and, you know, tier of legal expense I'm going to get into, right? Do I know that this firm is always going to bring me the most expensive firm in a foreign jurisdiction or, um, or are they part of a network that leverages other relationships or however that's going to work? And so that's important. Um, and then on, you know, on litigation, I haven't done as much work in terms of trying to get either flat fee or some not to exceed numbers for different portions of litigation. Um, but certainly I think that's something I might be interested in if I was going out to look for a new firm. Um, rather rely on a litigation context is understanding how a firm bills and how an individual attorney bills. And that's what, what I come to rely on or have come to rely on more. It's just an understanding that when I get the invoice, I'm going to either have a long series of surprises or I'm not. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, the latter is, is preferable and what, what drives me to come back to an attorney I've worked with in the past and had good experience with. Adam, you've got, I mean, I realize that your firm is fairly young, but you've got a background doing this. I mean, how much pressure are you getting? Because what Elliot, what he's saying is, uh, it sounds like there's still a tremendous amount of uncertainty until he gets to know a lawyer in their practices for a while. 
Um, what kind of pressure are you feeling on fees and how are you trying to deliver certainty to your clients? Yeah, and we try and get in, in front of it. Um, you know, being surprised with the bill, that's something you hear a lot with lawyers. But really, mm-hmm. if you think about it, there is no excuse except for rare, rare circumstances where a client should ever be surprised about a bill because you can always communicate about it. Um, <laughs> really? You know, we, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, and, and, you know, some people have real time tracking of bills. Some people like daily updates. Some people like a not to exceed. But at the end of the day, you can carve that turkey any way you want. It all comes down to communication. Um, and lawyers are fiduciaries, right? We, we always want to think of our clients' economic interests and we, we want to communicate the economic aspects of representation with our clients because no lawyer ever wants to not earn their keep. I mean, really, legal billing is about value in my mind. It's about it, are the services provided worth the money that you're paying? And if they're not, then the client should find somebody else because there's people that can provide all kinds of services at all kinds of economic levels. And, and lawyers should always earn their keep and they should never surprise clients for bills. So do we feel a lot of pressure to, to do it? Actually, generally, no, because that's one of the first things that we discuss with clients is, you know, all right, how, is this going to add enough value? Should you hire us to help you with this litigation? You know, we had a, somebody call the other day about a small claims court case. That's not a good case for us because we can't add enough value to justify our fees. And, you know, yesterday we received a call about a non-compete litigation. That's one where we can add enough value and we work on budgets you know, I think most firms now, big and small, have some good spreadsheets where they can provide clients with budgets. But again, I'm a big fan of pricing based on the value. And if you're not adding enough value to earn your keep, you really don't want the work because there might be other circumstances where you can, where if you take on work and you charge somebody something that's in excess of the value you provide, they're not going to be happy with you. They're not going to come back. Am I really hearing you guys right that downward pressure on pricing is not something that's playing very much of a role in either of your jobs? I No, I, I, I think there is a huge amount of pressure there. I, I hear what Adam is saying. I think that it is a bit of a binary question as to whether or not legal services provided are do exceed the value that I pay for them, right? Mm-hmm. And so frequently for me, I'm looking at a, I'm going out to a firm and especially a new firm and I'm looking for advice on risk or advice on a new uh, product line or advice on a, you know, an IP filing in a foreign jurisdiction I've never worked in before or dispute in a foreign jurisdiction I don't have experience in. And so to Adam's point, I certainly understand that I can get, get fairly comfortable with what it's going to cost me. I think a lot of the difficulty, however, is it's not until the end of the situation that I really sit back and say, all right, was this $14,000 worth it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's based on so many factors. Um, and I, again, I'm fortunate to not be involved in a lot of litigation here at Wowza. And so I think it perhaps makes it harder for me to analyze it when I've managed You can only to, see that in, in, in hindsight, right? You can't really see that looking Exactly. Forward. Yeah. Exactly. And I've managed, I've managed litigation portfolios before, and then it almost literally is a spreadsheet and I've got, you know, green, yellow, reds all over the place. And I can sort of say to myself, all right, well, I paid X and I'm doing pretty well here on my wins and losses. Um, here at Wowza, I don't have the benefit of that. And so it really is, and I don't know if I'm <laughs> arguing against Adam or with him here on this point, but it really is a more sort of qualitative thing. And that's where I go back to not wanting to be surprised, right? And so not, even if I know the legal work that's being done, I know the project or the question that I've asked for answers on, but do I get a bill back that's doing, that, you know, covers work to do exactly what I asked for? 
but there's three lawyers instead of two on the bill, mm-hmm. right? Or those sorts of things. That's where I find surprises um, in, a, in, you know, admittedly a sort of murky world of deciding whether or not I got good value for a given project. Um, Elliot, are you exploring alternative providers? I mean, there, are, uh, it feels like, especially in the business world, there are all kinds of alternative ways to get legal solutions these days. Um, and, you know, Jordan Furlong tells the story of sitting in on a client meeting at a big firm where um, the client had managed to outsource a bunch of their dis- discovery work and and some of their um, IP work to non-lawyer, non-firm providers. And uh, it, had, it had managed to cut the, the their annual spend with this firm down to 300 grand from 1.5 million. And the partners were going, well, how are we going to get that business back from you? And, and general counsel's going, I, you don't understand, it's not. We're never going to spend more than 300 grand with you again. And that's only going to go down from here because we're looking for ways to not give you money because you're too expensive. And I don't know if that's a one-off story or not, but it's definitely the buzz is that that's happening more and more where companies are trying to, in-house departments are trying to find ways to cut costs. And I'm curious if you're, you're working on that too, or if you're seeing it happen around you. Yeah, it makes me want to ask you for more details about who that is that saves all that money. Uh, I certainly, in part, there are areas in in which I'm kind of asking myself, do I need a law firm here? Right? Do I need a law firm to deal with whatever this issue is? Um, some examples that come to mind are around IP or specifically uh, domain issues, domain name issues, perhaps. But I actually find myself going the other way a lot of the time. So as we look to expand into new product lines and into new jurisdictions, I actually find that that law firms can provide a lot of value outside of this of the narrowest definition of a, a law firm. So as I think about, for instance, um, you know, providing software services um, or other things in places like China or India, um, I, there are any number of companies that will provide kind of business advice, right, on translating your materials or on how to how to find a channel partner or whatever those are. But I actually find that I get fairly superior advice from working with lawyers there who have business experience in those jurisdictions um, and certainly have found some of the same things to be true, even working with some of our U.S. firms to deal with international issues. Um, even when it comes time to talk to my CEO or talk to one of the other executives here at Wowza, um, I find it useful to either bring bring a lawyer or bring advice of a lawyer who has kind of legal plus business experience in that area. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm certainly in those cases, I'm, I'm overpaying in a sense probably for that for that advice, but um, I, I find it to be very worthwhile to to leverage all the experience that a lawyer has in in legal and business issues when when it comes time to to answer some questions. So Adam, does hearing that make you feel good or uh, wary? I mean, you know, some would say that litigation is in a relatively secure position, except that I also know that companies are trying to find as many ways to avoid litigation as they can. Um, I mean, how do you how do you feel about that? How does the landscape look like it's changing and, and how do you think you're going to adapt to it? Yeah, I agree with Elliot and I, I like everything he says and I like what you say about some <laughs> of that work going away from lawyers. Because nobody went to law school to review 30,000 documents or to do trademark filings over and over again or to do residential foreclosure forms filling out over and over again. There's nothing wrong with that kind of a practice, but some of that work that is coming away from law firms and lawyers, in in my personal opinion, good riddance. Yeah. Um, if there's a, a repetitive task that doesn't require good legal and business judgment, th- the real role of a lawyer is is a trusted advisor and a counselor. And you cannot do that. You can't do that 
without having business knowledge and without blending some legal and business knowledge together. Because that's where the real value comes in for paying large hourly rates. It isn't in filling out forms. Um, it, it's in giving good, solid advice. And that's what keeps clients coming back. I mean, every we keep using the word value. And that's not unique to law firm. Any business that's successful creates something of value. And the things that a lot of lawyers forget is that when you're serving a client, you have a lot of opportunity to add value by identifying opportunities to help the business and to seize them. And the only way you can do that is like Elliot mentioned, you have to listen closely to clients about what they want to do from a business perspective. You have to understand their needs and goals. And then you need to help think of creative ways to make them meet the goals, not just filling out the form. So I like hearing that. And, and I think that's, that's back to what lawyers really should do and what lawyers have traditionally done, which is, is offering just really good advice um, on business critical issues. And then, like you say, litigation is a little bit different, but I think a lot of tasks um, that traditionally have been a pain point from a fee perspective are going away either through alternative providers or through technological solutions. I'll give you an example without plugging any particular brand. You know, a lot of time and effort on, on hourly billing can go towards uh, certain transactional closing binders and other things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a solution and there's a lot of solutions out there now that automate those processes. So I think how law firms, at least how our firm is handling it, is not to try and get that work back. Um, it's to try and avoid that work or automate that work to add value. So if you can offer client solutions, like you mentioned the firm that went from, what was it, uh, $3 million to 300000 or something I, like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm right on the numbers, but uh, yes. You know, okay. something to think of is <laughs> how can we lump uh, that other $2.7 worth of work into our 300000 to add even more value? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if they're using automated solutions for deal rooms or, or predictive analytics, how can we as a firm use those tools and charge what we're charging now and add that into what we're providing to, to add value. I mean, it's it's tough, but that work that can be automated, that's repetitive, I don't think lawyers should be doing it. Right. So it sounds like you're trying to avoid as much of that work as possible by, um, you know, identifying, you know, here are the documents we keep producing. We better stop billing people for these. Yeah. And I mean, it's all, every conversation about rates always comes back to, to beating up the billable hour. Um, mm hmm well, and it shouldn't necessarily, but yeah. <laughs> but but the billable the billable hour has its its place, and I think it's important, and it it shows clients what's being done for, you know, for the price that's being charged. But when it comes to to value or figuring out what's worth it, the hourly rate is in large part irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would gladly pay um, a lawyer a thousand dollars an hour that bills a point one and solves a problem, than I would pay somebody charging a hundred dollars an hour that takes a week to figure out a solution, and so. I think once people start pricing away from the billable hour more and more, and once clients get more comfortable on rewarding value um, in a way that somebody might make more than they would if they were billing by the hour, if they're efficient and they can add that value. So I, I like fixed fees where you can do them. It's just really hard to do that in litigation. It is interesting as Adam's talking, I, those two themes almost converge backwards for me, um, where I see myself relying more on the billable hour as I'm making use of um, third-party technology solutions. So whether it be a, I don't want to plug any specific solutions here, of course, but whether it's an in-house product from a, a Lexus or a West um, or uh, a compliance product from a completely independent third party that, that allows me to have a, a technology framework for a solution or for a program, I do then find myself being far more accepting and interested in having 
straight billable hour relationships where, to Adam's point, I can simply pick up the phone and call someone and say, hey, can you either review this template that I downloaded or can you help me solve a problem making use of this other system that you've you've already recommended and vetted? So it's, it is an interesting situation where I think those themes kind of come back on themselves sometimes. So I have two more questions for each of you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them to you because I want you to prep for the next one. I always think it's kind of fun to ask people, what is your favorite day-to-day technology that you use to make your job easier? And so I'd love to get that answer from you last. Um, but first, you guys suggested this one, and I really liked it, which is, what do each of you wish that the outside counsel that you hire knew about working with you? So maybe, Adam, I guess it's your turn to talk, so why don't you go first? Um, or knew about working with you? What would make it easier for you to work with in-house counsel? I would like them to know that they should always feel free to pick up the phone and call and to give candid assessments of situations without having to worry about whether or not the meter's running. Mm -hmm. Again, our job is largely to find solutions to problems on the reactive front and to find ways to avoid problems on the proactive front. And and we can't really do that effectively without good communication from a client and, and a clear and detailed picture of what's going on. You know, a very common thing that I think a lot of uh, outhouse counsel probably are familiar with is the call from a client saying, you know, we really should have called you earlier about this issue. Here's what's <laughs> going on. It's really, really common. And you never, you never beat up a client about that. Of course, you handle it best you can. But some of the best value that we can provide is not reactive. Reactive is traditionally litigation. I don't regularly see litigations that spawn overnight with no back and forth that, that right. came before them. And sometimes picking up the phone and involving somebody outside that may have some expertise or may have, frankly, even just some value in being an outside counsel that's involved in a process. The ounce of prevention on legal work can be worth the pound of cure. So I wish they they felt free to pick up the phone and call because, again, if I had a client call me and say, hey, look, you know, can't bill for this, but really need your take on this issue, that's fine. You know, Hmm. most, and frankly, I can say most lawyers at most firms, big and small, if they have a good client and a good relationship and it's a small issue, nobody's going to have a problem unless a client abuses it, you know, not recording a point one or point two to opine on an issue or frankly, just to figure out whether it makes it worthwhile to get more involved in that issue. So Elliot, what do you wish that outside counsel that, that you end up hiring knew about working with you? I think understanding our risk tolerance and my risk tolerance is a is an important first step. I think it influences so much of the relationship go forward. Um, that, that's a that's an area that I want to make sure new outside counsel I'm working with are kind of up to speed on as as we get working together and understanding how myself and the leadership at Wowza use issues and approaches um, areas of risk and and how we try to mitigate and, and deal with those areas is a getting kind of on board with with our thinking in those areas is is really useful for creating a long-term relationship where I can get all the types of assistance I want, whether it be issue spotting or, you know, a wide range of recommendations or those sorts of things. But getting someone who is pretty quickly in tune with where we want to be from a risk point of view, um, and obviously that flows right back into kind of cost and understanding risk and cost tolerance um, is important. So I think understanding that perspective that we have on on business and legal issues is really useful. I, I recently heard a lawyer who typically works with startups um, say um, that one of their frustrations is that lawyers want to to get their clients a great result in the legal issue before them. And what most companies that are in any of the startup phases want is for an obstacle to be removed so they can grow. 
And it doesn't, it's not actually all that important how it gets resolved or it, it's still important, but it's not as important as get removing that obstacle so they can continue growing. Does that make sense to you? Does that resonate? Yeah, it does. I think if you'd asked the question slightly differently, I would have said something like, I want the lawyer to understand our technology and, and business roadmap. Yeah. Um, I think to your point, um, understanding, and our technology is tough. I mean, streaming video is a pretty deep uh, area of technology. And so understanding that and where we're trying to go with a company and t- uh, removing roadblocks, is the that's the game right there. That's it. Um, there's going to be risk and there's going to be things we can't solve for at any point in the in the game, but, but helping us remove those roadblocks is exactly what we're looking for. So you want, you want litigators that brand themselves, not as bulldogs, but as like uh, the cow catcher on the front of a steam train. <laughs> yeah. Until I need the bulldog. Right. And then I want the bulldog. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's the pump for folks like Adam for sure. <laughs> so Adam, what's uh what's your favorite day-to-day technology that just, uh, that you can't live without in your practice? Can I supplement my earlier answer? Oh yeah, yeah. First? Go ahead. Very, very briefly, because what Elliot said really made me think of it. The one one thing I would say that takes primacy over my earlier comment that I want in-house folks to know is we want to learn about your business mm-hmm. and we don't charge clients to learn about their business because like Elliot said, you really need to understand a client's business and you need to understand their goals and, and what they do really to help them remove those obstacles. And sometimes when you get a new piece of work or a new client, the conversation is, is, you know, here's this issue, here's this, here's that. And there's very little talking about, you know, kind of what, what do you do? What are your goals? What's the business? Even if it's not particularly pertinent to that issue. And I think some of that comes from the thought that, well, you know, we don't want to get charged on an hourly rate to, to have somebody learn things that they can read on their website. And so what we normally do is read the website as much as we can first. But I would like clients to feel comfortable, you know, off the clock talking about their business first so we can give better advice. I think that goes across the board. You know, lawyers just don't um, often take the time to stop thinking about outcomes in terms of dollar signs, but actually what does the client want here? And and if you can't achieve it through litigation, how, what's your strategy for getting it outside of litigation? Um, or or if it's a contract negotiation, you know, how do you, how do you pr- approach that when it's not just about, um, you know, your typical provisions and stuff? No, I mean, understanding your client's objectives is so key. And the problem is, you know, clients aren't always self-aware of their own objectives. <laughs> you know, sometimes they think they think they want one thing and and you need to have extra insight on top of that. And it maybe it's easier with businesses, um, but it's not always true with consumer clients for sure. All right, go go with your favorite tech, Adam. So so my favorite tech, while I'm not trying to plug any particular technology, I really, really, really like go for it. my iPad Pro with the Apple Pencil. Um I yeah. hate note taking. I hate paper, too. I have probably an irrational, um, I shouldn't say hatred, dislike of of paper, and that stems in part from just being a tech person. Um, also, I don't know why, but I tend to get a lot of paper cuts. I think paper dislikes me back. <laughs> I, truly, like it. Next time we meet, I have a scar on one of my fingers from an unusually deep Redwell cut that <laughs> happened during a trial. But I, I've also seen a lot of issues with paper that have created big legal problems, you know, from yeah. signature pages that, that there have been issues on. I had a, a you know, week-long trial on that uh, not that long ago. Hmm. So paper tends to cause a lot of mischief. And also we're subject to a lot of data security requirements for, for clients that make me nervous about taking client notes on paper. And, and so I just don't like it. It causes a lot of problems for me. So the ability to have like a, a nice, big, secure device that I can take to client meetings, write down notes with the little Apple Pencil, 
be able to email and share those notes and know they're secure. It has changed my practice because before I didn't do as good of a job of note taking and I couldn't share them as well. So I, I really, really love it. Do you use the big Apple iPad Pro or the small one? I got the big one, but if it breaks, I'll probably buy the small one. Cool. Any any other favorites? Um, I'm not sure if this counts as a, as a tech tool, but I love standing desks. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Absolutely love them. I couldn't work without them. In fact, I'm standing in front of my standing desk right now. What brand of standing desk do you have? I have a couple. So the one in front of me is a smart desk. Uh, we have a couple in the office that are the Ikea standing desk, which is mm-hmm. also pretty good. And then I forget the brand I have at home, but the next one I'm actually probably going to make myself. You can buy the frames online and I do amateur fair to middling woodwork. Nice. Is it that one that you can uh, adjust it up and down, but it's the whole thing is made out of wood? Yeah, the, the frames are generally metal. And then the top is just like a big piece of wood. And uh, what I did originally at, at my old shop is I took my old desk and we used to throw out a lot of books. We used to buy a lot of books and then, you know, they get old. And so I took about 100 books and just made my original sitting desk a standing desk with the books to see if I liked it. And I would strongly recommend if any of your listeners want to try a standing desk, just put old books and then try the standing desk. And then if you like it, you can buy one. And when you buy one, eventually having one that can raise and lower is kind of nice in case, you know, you hurt your back that day or you're tired and want to sit. Nice. Elliot, what are your favorite technology products that you can't do without? Yeah, I'm bending under my standing desk right now to figure out what this brand is. Um, <laughs> so I, I do also like the standing desk and the iPad for sure. Um, I've really come to love the Apple AirPods, actually. Um, I'm on video conference calls all the time, switching between my MacBook, my iPad, um, you know, conference room, audio, and the AirPods seem to work the best for all that, and obviously are wireless and all those neat things. I, I also, on my Mac, use a something I got for free from the App Store. I think it's called Clipboard History, but it creates, anytime I control C something on my computer, it just adds it to a list, and I can go back and look at my last 50 or 100 things that I've copied um, and so when I'm drafting agreements and working on red lines, I, that's pretty invaluable for me to go back and forth and keep track of all the different things I've been cutting and pasting. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, I appreciated this. You uh, let me dive deep into some geekery that really interests me, and you were willing to engage, and I really appreciate that. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and The Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.